We are in our second week of Advent and our second sermon in the series called Tidings of Comfort and Joy, where we're looking at some of the texts in Isaiah 40 to 55, a place that's filled with songs that, that bring comfort and songs that also invite us to rejoice. And last week, we looked at that first song of comfort in Isaiah 40, 1 through 11. And this week, we look at a song of creation. So along with Psalm 104 that Kristen read for us, we look today at Isaiah 40, verses 12 through 24, which is a song that assures us of a loving intent and the grace of God and the power of God in creation and really calls us to contemplate those truths as we consider our own lives, whatever our situation, whether that is in the midst of suffering or in the midst of joy. The call of the prophet is definitely a call to consider how much bigger God is than the things that we create for ourselves. So let's look at Isaiah 40 verses 12 through 24. Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand and marked off the heavens with a span enclosed the dust of the earth in a measure and weighed the mountains in scales and the hills in a balance? Who has directed the spirit of the Lord or as his counselor has instructed him? Whom did he consult for his enlightenment and who taught him the path of justice? Who taught him knowledge and showed him the way of understanding? Even the nations are like a drop from a bucket and are accounted as dust on the scales. See, he takes up the isles like fine dust. Lebanon would not provide fuel enough, nor are its animals enough for a burnt offering. All the nations are as nothing before him. They are accounted by him as less than nothing and emptiness. To whom then will you liken God? Or what likeness compare with him? An idol? A workman casts it, and a goldsmith overlays it with gold and casts it for its silver chains. As a gift one chooses mulberry wood, wood that will not rot, and then seeks out a skilled artisan to set up an image that will not topple. Have you not known? Have you not heard? Has it not been told you from the beginning? Have you not understood from the foundations of the earth? It is he who sits above the circle of the earth and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers, who stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them like a tent to live in, who brings princes to naught and makes the rulers of the earth as nothing. Scarcely are they planted, scarcely sown, scarcely has their stem taken root in the earth When he blows upon them, and they wither, and the tempest carries them off like stubble. What a great passage. (laughs) Let's pray. Lord, remind us this day of the significance that we can experience as we ponder our insignificance next to you. For in that very insignificance, we find your grace that you would make us for yourself and give us a home in your heart 
and seek to be in covenant relationship with us for eternity. So help us step back this day, pause to consider how great you are, but also how marvelous it is that you have reached for us, even in the face of that greatness. For we pray in Jesus' name, amen. So I suppose if I had the audacity and the energy and the tenacity to catalog 41 plus years of sermons, I would imagine that a few big themes or headings would often occur and those might be the best way to do that cataloging. And, and if you will, maybe to catalog by means of frequently occurring themes or uh, FOTs uh, instead of <laughs> FAQs. And one of those headings would be a phrase, God is God and we are not God. Yes. <laughs> and there's something both assuring and disturbing about that assertion, which we've talked about more than once. The assuring thing is the freedom in knowing that there is much in life that is not and will never be in my hands. It's the inspiring gentleness of a loose grip that gets brought forth into our lives when we contemplate God's greatness, that it inspires gentleness in us and gives us that loose grip in life and a closure and a cleaner sense of what is in our hands. What is not in our hands and what is in our hands. But there's also something very disturbing about that phrase, because if everything else is in God's hands, how much of the bad stuff that happens is due to some sort of intentional divine action or decision? It's that kind of worrisome and frightful view of God that emerges from this question that we really don't want to ponder, but God as the cosmic puppeteer who has all the strings and pulls them and watches for his own amusement and concern. Not a real pleasant picture of God, obviously. And what it ends up doing is turning much of one's prayer time into the prayer, Lord, why are you allowing or doing this? And that's a reasonable question. One that composes the very essence of lament, which is in the scriptures in every place you can imagine. But if God is God and I am not God, how much can I know about God and what does that tell me about who I am? And that's the question of faith. Who are you, Lord, and, and who am I? To what extent can I relate to this God, and to what extent do I want relationship with this God? Last week we looked at a song of comfort where the prophet assured his people in exile that this mighty God who can change the landscape is also the loving and tender God who draws near with the gentleness of a shepherd. And today we have a song about God as creator. And what contemplation of creation teaches us and about 
what we should think about who God is. Remember, like I said, Isaiah is writing here at, at this time in these chapters to his people who feel abandoned by God or, or at the very least punished by God because they've been sent into exile or taken into exile by the Babylonian Empire and uh, kept there for 70 years. And as the prophet begins to preach these oracles, to sing these songs to his people, there are signs that that exile is coming to an end because the Babylonian Empire is being displaced by the next one coming up underneath it, which is the Persian Empire. And Emperor Cyrus is taking care of the nuisance that the Babylonians have been to the Jews and is now promising to return them to Jerusalem. And essentially, what the prophet is saying is if you are wondering if this God cares about you and whether he will use his power to release and restore you, then just step back for a moment and do the spiritual exercise of exploring what God has made of looking at creation and letting it see what it tells you about the character of this God. He really asks a series of rhetorical questions in order to get them to work with that comment. Remember that God is God and that you are not God. And they're pretty simple questions. Verse 12, he asks them to look at the unfathomable magnitude of what God has made and the rhetorical question is, who else can do this? In verses 13 and 14, he asks that series of questions about who God's advisors were. And essentially asks the rhetorical question, you know, did God hire consultants? And then in verse 18, can you compare God with other powers? If you do compare God with other powers, then what do you find out? He asks the question, to whom will you liken God? Is there some equal force or being that you can compare with him? And obviously, all of these questions have assumed answers as the prophet asks them. But as he does this, he also does one more thing. He invites his people to consider God and to compare God to the great powers that human beings create and sustain. And he uses two themes or two notions to invite them to do this. He says, look at the nations and look at the idols or the gods that people have set up in those nations. And we'll see over and over again in Isaiah 40 to 55 that the prophet keeps asking that question. Just how powerful are the nations next to God? And just how meaningful and powerful are idols next to the God who, who cannot be contained in an image of any kind? In fact, there's this great apocryphal story of Pompey, the great Roman conquering general coming into Jerusalem in 63 BC when Jerusalem was taken over by the Romans and entering the temple and thus defiling it because he was a Gentile in the temple. 
but not destroying the temple. Walking into the Holy of Holies, the holiest place, and looking around and feeling as if there was nothing there. Anticipating going into that space that these people who believe that there's just one God, how big must that representation to God be in their holy of holiest space in their temple? And kind of being dumbfounded by the fact that there was no image there at all. That's what says it. Compare God to the nations and to the idols of the nations, says Isaiah. And the nations are, are great powers who have power over your lives. And certainly that is the story of the Jews from the Assyrians to the Babylonians to the Persians to the Greeks to the Romans. All of the great ancient empires occupied that territory. And yet what Isaiah says is empires come and go. It's the great thing about historians. Historians know that empires come and go. Most of us don't think about that. We think they're going to last forever, especially if we're on top. But they don't. They all go under at some point. They all fail at some point. They all get displaced at some point by something else that comes up underneath them. And then with respect to idols, the prophet says the, the gods that those nations bow down to and worship, who they claim have given them the power over you, are just nothing more than reflections of themselves. They're things that, that they have made. And so what the prophet is saying to his people is the, the powers under whose thumb you currently perceive yourself to be, the powers that you perceive to be so powerful, these powers that hold sway in your life, powers created by other human beings, will rise and fall and can never have the last word. <coughs> and the last word is the same as the first word, which is let there be light. And so he asks, to whom then will you liken God? God is God, and you are not God. It's, like I said, it's both an assuring and a confounding assertion. For what do we do when those human powers seem to be winning, or God seems to be using them to punish us, whatever way you want to look at it? What do we do when we believe that God has the power over the powers, but we're also living under the thumb of some power that holds sway over us? Well, I think the prophet gives us a picture of what we can do. We consider what has lasted longer than the nations. And then we pause to remember that God has also made us. And we step back and suddenly see a bigger picture. We see the one who gave us life and continues to hold us in his hands and so become stewards of what he made for us rather than anxious people who perceive themselves to be masters of their destiny and controllers of the elements. So I want to share personally for a, a few moments here at the end 
Paul's line in Corinthians I love when he says, I have no word from the Lord on this, but I'll give you my best opinion. Well, that's what you're going to get. You're going to get Dave's best opinion here. So please feel free to challenge it. I fear for our nation in these days. I'm sure most of us do, irrespective of where we come from and what we perceive to be the problem. But I need to say that I do not fear for our nation simply because of moral decline and destruction of long-held social norms, nor do I fear simply because the democratic republic that the framers of the Constitution created seems to be threatened. What I fear mainly is that we are becoming a people in this country on both sides of the question a people who seem to believe that the one we put in the White House will make all things better. Again, my opinion. And make all things better by restoring what should be or preventing what shouldn't. And that we can vote, and if our side wins, therefore relax, and if our side loses, begin the next fight over who will be our king. It's a pretty tiresome and endless pursuit. What I fear is just how foolishly small this perspective is, especially for those of us who believe we belong to something bigger than the USA, namely the care of the one who created us. And I think those rhetorical questions the prophet asks us to ponder can widen the angle a little bit, can take us out far enough from the stuff that's in our face and help us to see that we're set in a much bigger context than the things that make us afraid. Those rhetorical questions that the prophet asks us to ponder, widen the angle, and allow us to see the bigger picture and the fruit of pondering the magnitude of our Creator is always humility and stewardship and a call away from arrogance and attempts to control. And the fruit of this perspective is to allow ourselves to rest in the arms of God and be grateful and generous towards the earth rather than create gods who are no gods who we think are going to save us. Strangely, there's a call to action inherent in this perspective. To rest in the arms of our creator is to engage the world with the same love that sang us into being in the first place. And so I want to end with another admonition from Isaiah from a different part of the book, the 30th chapter, where he says, In returning and rest you shall be saved. In quietness and in trust shall be your strength. For the Lord is a God of justice, and blessed are all those who wait for God. Let's pray. 
Lift us beyond the limits of our own stunted imaginations and the fears that we think ought to be determining all that we do. And help us to see that we are solidly in your grip and help us to respond accordingly with confidence and with peace, knowing that your love is steadfast, that your light shines in the darkness and the darkness cannot overcome it. For we pray in Jesus' name, amen. amen.